This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Trauma Informed Care 101. Imagine you're a few hours into your night shift. The pace is decent. The patience? Expected. Then you walk out of a room to see, no, no, really, you hear a young adult yelling obscenities as she's rolled in on an EMS gurney. She is thin, dirty, dressed in old clothes, and her hair, well, it's a rat's nest. Your team quickly assembles, gloving up, grabbing restraints. Police start down the hall. Though clearly not happy on the gurney as they stop beside our bed, she clearly does not want to get off of the gurney. The medics report she's a 19-year-old female who is known to use meth and was walking down the aisles of a local pharmacy pulling items off of the shelf screaming, I'm a victim of human trafficking! Now, she cautiously creeps onto our bed but looks like a deer in the headlights as you and your team approach. Then it starts. She is back to screaming. She pushed aside the tech's arm as he tried to grab her shirt. Then the nurse grabs her arm tightly so she doesn't swing and shouts, No! No hitting! She turns and spits at him, and then everyone jumps in and grabs an extremity. One nurse heads for the door and asks, B-52, right? More like a statement. She's clearly agitated, likely on drugs. She's swinging, bucking, spitting. You sigh and say, yeah, yeah, okay. You know there will be screaming. Your team will be put at risk and you will have to scan her because you can't get a good exam. And frankly, the room is going to be tied up for the rest of the night as she sleeps off the V-52 and the drugs. But here we go. Welcome back to E-Impulse. Today, we're going to talk about trauma-informed care, another topic that is near and dear to my own heart. And because of that, I am going to interview Julia as one of the experts on this topic. The good news is that there are many people familiar with trauma-informed care in our department, so we have a whole team today. My name is Angela Jarman. I am an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis, and I'm also the director of sex and gender in emergency medicine. My name is Bryn Muma. I'm an associate professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis. I co-lead our UC Davis human trafficking workgroup, and I also serve as the chair of our Diversity, Inclusion, Equity, and Emergency Medicine Research Subcommittee. So thank you guys all for coming on today. You know, trauma-informed care is kind of a buzzword in emergency medicine or in medicine in general, but what does that actually mean? I think of trauma-informed care as an approach to care. Despite our role in the emergency department, it does not refer to taking care of people's physical traumatic injuries, but rather recognizing that past traumas or adverse experiences impact our patients psychologically, emotionally, and yes, even physically. When we recognize past traumas impact our patients, we approach them with principles, policies, and practices that resist re-traumatizing them. I personally like the definition that SAMHSA, or Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, says. They recognize that there are four guiding principles for providing trauma-informed care. First off, realize the widespread influence of trauma and understand potential paths for recovery. Second, recognize the signs and symptoms of trauma in clients, families, staff, and others involved within the system. Third, respond by fully integrating knowledge about trauma into policies, practices, 
and procedures. And fourth, actively seek to resist re-traumatization. SAMHSA also notes that it's the individual clinician's responsibility, but it's also the responsibility is of departments, hospitals, health systems, the government. It's everybody's responsibility to use trauma-informed care. The second aspect of trauma-informed care that I think about is recognizing that we as clinicians experience trauma in our own lives. Often this is at work, right? We're often verbally assaulted or even physically assaulted at work or threatened. And this has to impact us as clinicians. So we need to recognize, Sarah, that our own experiences trigger us when we see similar situations. So trauma-informed care is recognizing trauma impacts our patients and us and using principles of care that resist re-traumatizing. We'll go into some of the specifics of how, but that basically defines trauma-informed care. I totally agree that we have been throwing around this term trauma-informed care now, and I'm so happy that we're doing that. And I think as an approach, it's so important to patients. But I just want to emphasize to the audience and to learners everywhere, that's not different than what we've always been doing. We're just using different terminology. So another way to describe trauma-informed care is culturally competent, compassionate, empathetic care, right? It means sitting down, it means listening, and it means patient-centered care, which we've been focused on for a very long time. So when we talk about trauma-informed care, one of the guiding principles that Julia discussed is just keeping the patient in the center. So we want to think about the patient's history, the patient's past, and what we're doing to the patient and with the patient. We want to think of the patient as a partner in their care. Um, and that's not different than what we've been taught all along. We're just sort of using different terminology to describe patient-centered medicine with an emphasis on prior histories of trauma. So let's come back to the ED. Why is this particularly important for our patients in the ER? I think there are a lot of reasons that trauma-informed care is particularly relevant in the emergency department. Um, anyone who's been in an emergency department knows it's just a high-stress environment. There's a lot of chaos and unpredictability. And there are a lot of things that are out of the control of patients as well as out of the control of providers. Simple things like the timing of interventions, when things will happen, whether a patient's going to go home or be admitted. So there are a lot of things that aren't choices that seem very chaotic and out of control. And then there are a lot of algorithms that we're used to following. The classic example is the trauma bay. The patient comes in and we need them to be quickly undressed so we can assess for injuries. But a lot of times we don't slow down to really explain to the patient what's going to happen. It's a very fast-paced, chaotic environment, which is really hard for patients who aren't sure what's going on or what to expect and just feel like they have this complete loss of control. The emergency department is a really fast-paced but also high-stakes environment, and also we are the front line of medicine. So we see patients with all kinds of trauma, and I think historically a lot of this trauma-informed care literature or idea came out of violently injured patients, but these principles are applicable everywhere. So I work in the area of sex and gender and so I come to trauma-informed care from that angle, thinking about gender-based violence, thinking about intimate partner violence, and thinking about care of sex and gender minorities or LGBTQ patients. We take care of all of those patients, and sometimes we're the gateway between them getting access to any other care. So I would say in the emergency department, the stakes are so high for us because for a lot of people, we're their first encounter with the healthcare system. So if patients have a traumatic experience with us in the emergency department, they're much less likely 
to follow up with specialists or even primary care that are really crucial to their long-term health. And I think we also see a lot of patients who have had a previous negative or traumatic experience with the healthcare system and have resisted coming back until the point that, you know, their condition gets to the point that they need to come to the emergency department. So we really need to work extra hard to overcome their prior traumatic experiences and rebuild that therapeutic relationship with them so that they, moving forward, will be able to get the care they need. We care for a lot of vulnerable patients, a lot of minoritized populations. If you think about homeless patients, substance use patients, incarcerated patients, sex and gender minorities, racial minorities, all of those patients have been minoritized in in different sectors of society, and they all come through the emergency department. So just emphasizing that we really want to do a good job and not re-traumatize those patients will make a huge impact on their life, not just the day that we see them, but going forward. So talk to us about how some of those past traumas might actually impact our patients. I think that past trauma manifests itself in many different ways in the emergency department, which sometimes makes it hard to detect. The cases where a patient comes in and is very you know, visibly upset are a little bit easier to identify. Sometimes you can tell a patient just seems very uneasy with what's happening. They may even be on the opposite end of the spectrum. Instead of being agitated, they may seem really withdrawn and reluctant to answer any questions to the point that it's hard to know how to help them. So it's really the full spectrum. And I think when a patient is just not acting the way you would expect, maybe there's some prior trauma and maybe you need to kind of step back and take a different approach to try to really figure out what's going on. We classically think of sort of two different examples of the traumatized patient. The first is the easy one who gets classically labeled as agitated or difficult, who's not cooperative with the things that we're demanding that they do on our time schedule. And that patient is easy to identify and easy for us to take a step back and engage them in the decision-making process and do some shared decision-making with them. The withdrawn patient is sometimes harder because those are patients that require a different approach. And it may take you some time to kind of sort out exactly what prior experiences they're dealing with in order to engage them in the care that you're giving that day. I think it's really important to realize that our patients often don't recognize that I have a prior trauma and this is why I'm acting this way. So patients are not even often able to articulate why they feel the way they are, why they're behaving the way they are. It's unintentional. And it's something that I think we as physicians need to piece together and respond to. I like the comparison to just empathetic care, because if you have a patient that's difficult to engage, you have to try something different. And the withdrawn type of patient is the type of patient where sometimes if you have fewer people in the room, if you go back just yourself, if you sit down, if you dim the lighting a little bit and have a more intimate sort of conversation than you may get somewhere in a different way than if you come in on this pillar as the person with the power, the doctor, and demand that they answer your questions on your timetable. This also just emphasizes how medicine has changed in the last few decades. We no longer have this paternalistic model where I'm the physician and I'm going to tell you what's the best thing for you, right? We're trying to encourage people to understand patients in their context and to engage in a conversation with patients. And not every patient is the same, right? Sometimes we try to engage patients and they just say whatever you 
think, doc, I trust you. But that's not true for a lot of patients. And so using a trauma-informed approach is another place where we get to assess the patient and kind of feel out how much voice they want to have in their care. And these are patients that generally want and need to have more autonomy in their care, and we can easily accommodate that. We keep talking about trauma and considering the role of trauma in patients' care, but I think it's really important to emphasize that there's not a need to really dive into patients' past trauma and ask them to tell us about it because that in and of itself can be re-traumatizing. And the other point is that we want to take a universal approach and assume that every patient has trauma and approach every patient this way because, frankly, the majority of the patients we see do have some prior trauma. Sure. Are there any specific risk factors you might look for, any groups you might be particularly aware of? I mean, if you think of any vulnerable group, then I think they're at higher risk of trauma. So you can go as far as like, what does the NIH consider a vulnerable population? Sex and gender minorities are on that list, racial minorities, prisoners, pregnant women, etc. But any minoritized community is going to be at increased risk of trauma because they are minoritized or stigmatized in different ways in our society. There are so many groups that experience trauma that I think when you put them all together, we just have to think about it in everyone, especially when you think about the number of our patients who have had some history of sexual assault, particularly female patients. Certainly risk factors include, though, you know, patients who are transgender, non-binary, minority groups, patients who are experiencing or have experienced homelessness, youth who have come through the foster system or have run away from home, patients who have a substance use disorder or mental health condition. There are just so many things that can predispose to trauma. And obviously, many of these risk factors overlap such that a patient will have multiple risk factors for trauma. I also think of it in terms of chief complaints. So when my trainees going into the room, if there's a chief complaint of mental health issues or acute psychosis or intoxication or assault or need for STI testing, those types of chief complaints raise my suspicion a little bit more even before I walk into the door. I'll often have a conversation with my team that's going in to be aware that we may need to approach the situation with more patient-centered care, more compassion, really engage those principles from the start. I think return visits are important as well along those same lines. When we're seeing patients in the emergency department multiple times, particularly for the same complaint, that's another opportunity for us to engage and figure out what's happening in the outpatient setting that they're not getting what they need. And then I also just wanted to uh, echo something else Bryn said, which was about overlapping identities and just to bring up the idea of intersectionality, because we see patients with multiple minority identities and these are all interacting. So consider all of those when you're seeing a patient. If you have a patient who is homeless with a substance use disorder that's untreated with a mental health condition that is poorly managed, that person is going to be a lot more at risk than a person who just has one minoritized identity. So you have all mentioned some strategies that you use. Do you have any other suggestions for what to do once you suspect that past traumas are impacting the interaction? 
So I think the specific approach depends on the situation. But one specific example is we had a young woman come in after a motor vehicle accident and the trauma team is ready. She's clearly stable enough that we can take a few minute pause and everybody kind of starts quickly trying to help her get undressed and trying to quickly get on a monitor. And there's just a lot of hands on deck. And she was clearly being really stressed out by this, possibly from a history of trauma, possibly from something else. But one thing that I found really helpful is everybody stepped away. We closed the curtain. We allowed her to undress privately, put her gown on, and let us know when she was ready for us to finish the exam. And it only took a minute or two, but it made a really big difference in terms of changing the tone of that entire encounter moving forward. It really set us up with a relationship of trust that we could then have a conversation about what happened and what the next steps would be. This is a point where as the physician you really have to take your role as the leader of the team seriously. And I find this really helpful to kind of pull my team back, have a powwow with them and try to guide the direction that our resuscitation or our care is going to take. We do a good job in our department, I think, of training on these types of things. But you have to understand that for a lot of staff members, the focus is doing tasks and flow. And so when we have to take a pause and ask them to not do their job, that is counterintuitive. So it's very helpful to educate the team or just engage the team in my thought process of why we're going to do things slightly differently than our general protocol may be written. My approach starts at the doorway as well, like even before I walk into the patient room, right? And I want my greeting to be not provocative, if at all possible. So instead of starting with like, what did you get yourself into today? (laughs) I may say, oh, man, I'm so sorry this happened to you. Can you tell me how this happened? We want to make sure that we're using empathy and compassion each step of the way. And I want to be very clear and concise with my language and my communication. I try to understand what their needs are and what their expectations are for the visit as well, because my expectations often don't match their expectations. So understanding that up front really helps me. And then when I suspect someone has trauma in the past that's coloring the way that our encounter is going, I am very clear with what I'm doing as I walk towards the patient, as I ask to listen to their lungs, you know, if they're an older child or a young adult, and I let them know what I'm doing each step of the way and ask for their permission I also try to give them a timeline, if at all possible. I know that's really hard to do in the emergency department, but give them a timeline of what I expect and how I expect things to progress forward. And then this is the patient that I circle by and update more frequently. I feel like I need to touch bases with them and make sure that I understand the temperature in the room and what their needs are and that they understand what's going on outside as well. So I over-communicate, I guess, in those situations. I also try to assign a single team member to be that primary source of communication. I prefer it to be me, but sometimes it's not, right? Like sometimes there's a tech or a nurse or a med student or a resident that has better rapport with that patient, and that's okay. I let them be the primary ones to take lead and communicate. The simpler, the better. And I also try to avoid having these patients in loud areas, so right next to a trauma bay or in a trauma bay where there's other trauma patients coming through or, God forbid, in a hallway. We want to avoid those locations, if at all possible. And I want to remind them that they're in a safe place right now. I want to give them choices and be honest with them. I'm never going to lie to them. We don't want to lie to them. 
And I want to be realistic with them about what the outcomes of that visit are. So those are kind of my initial approaches, hopefully before somebody's escalated. So what about when you do have that escalating patient or that patient who's behaving in an agitated or sometimes even hostile way, or maybe we've gotten it wrong from the beginning and we did not start an interaction outright? How do you de-escalate? So I think the approach is very similar to what Julia and Angela just outlined. It's important to identify what your approach is going to be before you walk into the room, especially in a patient who's already agitated. It's really important to set clear limits and stand by them, but still offer choices. So you might say something like, you know, we need to give you a medication to help you calm down, but I can give it to you as a shot or a pill. Do you have a preference? Where you're still setting a limit, but you're at least allowing the patient to have choices within reason. I think there's a fine line here, too, where we have to consider there's an agitated patient and there's a violent patient, right? So if we're going into the realm of violence where ourselves or our staff or the patient are at risk, then that's sort of a different category where we don't necessarily have the choice to escalate at that moment to keep everyone safe. But a lot of these patients that get labeled as agitated, belligerent, et cetera, this is all verbal and is a great place for de-escalation. So lots of times, one of the first things that helps is just to kind of stop, you know, and often people are attracted to these situations because they want to help and want to keep everyone safe. But if you have 10 people in the room, that's certainly going to escalate the situation, right? So trying to withdraw at least half the people and they can stand by and be ready to help if we need them to keep everyone safe. But sometimes getting them out of the field of view of the patient just having one person in the room or giving the patient a few minutes just to cool off by themselves is remarkably helpful. And then you can kind of reset and start over, go in as one person. And then all the normal things that we talk about with patient-centered care, like sitting down, being eye-to-eye level with the patient. When I was in medical school, they taught us when we were examining psychiatric patients to always tell them what you were doing. Well, we should do that for every patient. There's no reason that I should be sneak attacking a physical exam on someone. Before I touch any patient, I tell them that I'm going to touch them. And that way they aren't surprised. You know, it, it, think about the way we were taught to do uh, pelvic exams. First, you're going to feel my hand on the outside, etc. So we can incorporate those things into every encounter. And that does nothing but help. No patient has ever told me stop. You're telling me too many things. (laughs) One thing that we haven't explicitly addressed is sometimes when a patient starts to get agitated, we respond with sort of a show of force where everybody shows up. And even in our emergency department, sometimes the UC Davis police will come. And that occasionally is necessary, but a lot of times just triggers the patient to get even more agitated They may have had a prior negative experience with the police. They may feel like they're suddenly in trouble and they don't understand why the police are suddenly here to arrest them or get involved. The police are coming with good intentions, but if we can get them to move around the corner where they're still available if needed for safety, but out of the patient's line of view to make it very clear to the patient that we are not the police and we are not here to get them in trouble, that can be really helpful. You know, I don't have a traumatic experience with police that triggered me in that same way. But I still think if I was in a hospital room and there was five police officers outside of my room putting gloves on, getting ready to walk in, I would be over the top as well, right? You don't have to have that experience to be totally intimidated. And so we just need to be really intentional about that. And I agree with Angela that we are not talking about letting somebody be 
violent or unsafe towards ourselves or towards our team or towards themselves or other patients, right? Our safety is first and foremost. And it is easy for people that are not clinicians who have had a full urinal chucked at them in the emergency department, right? Like if you haven't had something thrown at you in the emergency department, which we probably all have, right? (laughs) Then- You haven't worked long enough. (laughs) I've had a book and a urinal thrown at me and I work in peds. But if you haven't been threatened or been in one of those physical situations, it's easier to throw verbal stones at somebody else in these moments. We have a hard job, guys. It is really hard to figure out, is this trauma and agitation and I can work my way through this? Or are we now at an unsafe spot and somebody's about to get hurt? That is a really hard decision that we face on a very regular basis. And I respect that. I really do. I have to go back and amplify something else you said, which was that you didn't necessarily understand because you have not had a traumatic experience with law enforcement. And I want to commend you for having the insight to recognize that, right? You're illustrating a principle of trauma-informed care and that you have knowledge of the effect of that trauma. So I too have not been personally traumatized by law enforcement, but I know a lot of people that have, and I see daily the effect on that. So I think this is just a really good place for us to remember to be humble and to remember that our experience, if I use myself as an example, I'm a cisgendered tall white lady and I'm straight. So I don't have a lot of minoritized identities and I'm not going to have shared a lot of experience with some of my patients, but that doesn't mean that I can't be empathetic and be understanding of the experiences that they have had with a variety of trauma. You know, we talk about being threatened and our own trauma in the emergency department here. And I'd love to talk about this on another podcast as well. But I think we need to recognize that trauma-informed care is understanding that those trauma experiences in the emergency department trigger us as well. Because then maybe when you see a similar patient or a similar situation, you remember that urinal being chucked at you. You remember that book being chucked at you. And you may escalate and treat that patient differently than you would have pre-urinal being chucked at you. So... Are there things that we can do on a systemic level to improve or utilize trauma-informed care? Absolutely. I can talk a little bit about sexual assault. That's a great example of something that we're trying to improve in in our emergency department. So that's one of the pillars of trauma-informed care is appropriate policies and protocols to try to minimize re-traumatization. So we're doing things like try to recognize these patients early in triage, try to get them straight to a room, try to choose the room that's in the back corner that's kind of quiet, limit the number of people that are interacting so they're not having to tell a traumatic story four, five, six different times. Normally the history is an iterative process and we expect that, but this is not the type of patient that we want to have to do that. Limiting and controlling interactions with law enforcement so that the patient has some control or just some of the general ideas what we're doing for sexual assault. And I think another important area is communication within the team and using EMR as a tool to facilitate communication 
sometimes we'll have a patient, particularly transgender patients, we're lucky in that our EMR allows patients to enter their gender identity and their pronouns. Even with that, there's still confusion. And sometimes the paramedics will bring in a patient and give us their biological sex rather than their gender identity. And this just creates confusion among the team, but the patient is misgendered and it just re-traumatizes the patient unnecessarily in ways that we could prevent with clear communication. And if an error has been made, certainly apologizing to the patient and then making sure that the rest of the team is informed so that the next provider doesn't go into the room and make the same mistake again. I would also add education. We need to educate ourselves on trauma-informed care. We need to educate our teams, right? The techs, the nurses, the people greeting them as they're walking through the door, security. Everybody needs to be educated on de-escalation principles and trauma-informed care principles. And uh, we need to pass this on to the next generation of physicians as well. So I'm glad that we're talking about this. Absolutely. I think we're lucky to have a good team here working on all this stuff. Let's rerun that night shift, and this time, let's use the principles of trauma-informed care. Imagine you're a few hours into your night shift. The pace is decent. The patient's expected. Then you walk out of a room to see, no, no, really, you hear a young adult yelling obscenities as she's rolled in on an EMS gurney. She is thin, dirty, dressed in old clothes, and her hair, well, it's a rat's nest. Your team quickly assembles, gloving up, grabbing restraints. Police start down the hall. You step up and you note that she's not violent. She appears scared and really could be intoxicated. You quietly ask the rest of your team to stand back out of the line of vision of the patient. You and one nurse quietly walk into the room. EMS moves fast, but picks up that you and the nurse are moving and speaking at a different speed. They explain to her where she is, what they are going to do next, and ask her if she would rather stay on the gurney or in the bed while they report. The nurse quietly walks up and introduces himself. He asks if she needs a blanket. She decides to sit on the bed, and the medics report she is a 19-year-old female who is known to use meth and was walking down the aisles of the local pharmacy pulling items off the shelf screaming, I'm a victim of human trafficking. As they tell the story, she becomes more anxious, almost agitated. So you and the medics walk outside, and she calms down with the nurse at bedside. When you return to learn more, she is still anxious, and she's not speaking. But the nurse and a tech and you quietly help her undress into a gown with the drapes closed, lights low, and let her know what you're doing each step of the way. You finish your assessment and you walk out to let her rest while you see more patients. Another RN is ready with meds and asks, B-52? You respond, no, not this time. Pulse check. Trauma-informed care is culturally competent, compassionate, and empathetic care that keeps the patient in the center and recognizes that trauma changes how our patients experience us the ED, and their care. This can manifest as hyperarousal, aggression, anger, or withdrawal. Use clear and concise language. Understand what their needs and expectations are. Describe what you're doing. Try to give them a timeline and engage them in decision-making. Assign a single team member to be the primary source of communication. 
If there's a nurse or tech they connect with, I let them take the lead and communicate through them. Avoid loud areas and hallways, and most importantly, be honest and realistic. De-escalate early with communication, fewer stimulations, and slower movements. It is worth the time to de-escalate a patient. Safety is still first, and a verbally de-escalated patient is always safer than a physically de-escalated patient. Lead by example so the whole team can see the power of trauma-informed care. I would like to recommend to you my all-time favorite trauma-informed care article titled Trauma-Informed Care for Violently Injured Patients in the Emergency Department. This article was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in February 2019. It's an awesome resource, and we have a link to it in the show notes. And while you're there, please subscribe and leave us a comment. This is how we get the word out about these practice-changing topics. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for working with the audio challenges we tossed your way this episode. Thank you to our department for valuing trauma-informed care. See you all next time.